to the Gods to Ghost Volleyball Podcast and your host, Scott Bemke, for part two of our interview with Jeff Jordan. Before we get started with Jeff's part two interview, please make sure to visit our website, which is godstoghosts.com. That's G-O-D-S-T-O-G-H-O-S-T-S.com. Our website's dedicated to the history of this amazing sport, all the legends who played it, the coaches and the characters and other contributors that played a big role in it. On it, you'll find all of our podcasts, videos, and photos in assorted volleyball documents we've been fortunate enough to accrue over the last year or two. Without further ado, let's get started then with Jeff Jordan, part two. So Jeff, the South Bay, you saw some great players there in the uh, 60s and 70s, I'm guessing uh, when you're coming up. Um, was there a particular play that sticks out that really boggled your mind and to this day you can remember it vividly down there with all those legends playing? <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, we all think back to, to certain matches. We talked about it. My favorite match, or uh, I thought was the greatest match we talked about uh, when we spoke earlier. Uh, you know, it's funny, this Henry Bergman, you know, every anybody that was around and saw Henry play, you, you just can't help but be excited watching him because he really wasn't that big. Um, I'd say he was six feet. I don't know him personally, really, but... But he had, did have long arms, that is true, which is a big thing today. A lot of people notice that with basketball and volleyball. Uh, I hear him talking about their length all their time. And he had arms that hung down pretty good, and he also <laughs> jumped really well. Anyway, it's funny. Uh, this is from very early on. Uh, it was Von, Von Hagen Bergman were playing, and I, I think you said when Von Hagen Bergman played Clement Rundle in the finals, at Manhattan wasn't wasn't it like seventy one or two, or do you remember? Yeah, it was uh, seventy and seventy one. I think or they played them both those years. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, this was seventy or seventy one. Actually, I think it was the second year, because it seemed like they had played the year before. Also, anyway, anyway. I, so it was around. It was that time, and this wasn't a big game or anything. I'm not saying you know this is like the most important thing. It's just that Bergman. Bergman hit a ball. Well, let me... So was this like a Saturday morning match, like when they're on one of the side uh, courts or something? Saturday medium afternoon. I would say it was second round, maybe third. But don't forget, Manhattan always had 100 teams. So second, third round, you know, you're still in the lower level. However, they were playing 
one of the all-time older guys, Bobby Barber, Mark Barber and Brad Barber's dad, and I believe he was playing with his son Brad. I'm not sure of that. I'm not. Don't stake my reputation. But it was Bobby Barber and I believe Brad Barber. Anyway, it was so it was like second or third round. This wasn't like some really important game, but the thing was back then wherever Von Hagen went, every the crowd all followed because he was just his he was such a stud. You know, he had all these muscles. He was big, and of course he was arguably the best player. Well, he was probably much was the best player at the time if you look at the whole year. And so people would follow Von Hagen around, and this is Manhattan. So even though it's noon or something on Saturday, there were probably a thousand people there at the whole tournament. But there's probably ten games going on. But the thing is, a lot of people gravitate to Von Hagen's game. Plus, it was a winner's bracket, so there were probably a hundred or two hundred people watching this game, even though it was kind of meaningless and early. So there was say two, three people deep around the court. And people were pretty excited just to see Von Hagen and Bergman. Mm-hmm. And Bergman was always a treat because he didn't play all the time, man. When he showed up, everybody got excited. <laughs> you knew you were going to see something. <laughs> now, I mean, it's true. And he, plus, he had those searing eyes. Bergman was a complete, uh, what do you call him? What's that word? Uh, enigma. He was an enigma to everybody. He lived in Santa Barbara. He used to... Bob Clem told me before, he went home to Santa Barbara on Saturday night when he's playing in Manhattan. Can you imagine? I heard he did that from San Diego and from uh, everywhere else, too. He would always, he liked to sleep in his own bed. Yeah, well, we all do, but still, man, (laughs) I believe it with him. You know, he was a little out there. Anyway, so anyway, that's the setup, okay? There's a couple hundred people watching. People are excited because Von Hagen's playing and Bergman. But it's a lesser game. It's not some big final or something. Okay, so the funny thing is, is that Bobby Barber, who had one of the best deep court shots of anybody that ever played, he would put his arm up and fake like he was going to dink, and then he would knock it and hit it, loop it over your head. And literally, he got Von Hagen about five times with that shot. So they were actually behind. I mean, it wasn't like 13 five or something. It was like eight five or something. But still, that was a huge deal when you're playing Von Hagen Bergman if you're up eight five going to 15. Heck yeah. Yeah, hell yeah. That would be a victory okay. in my book. <laughs> <laughs> you're damn straight. Anyway, so anyway, it was about that time of the game and I think they knew that they had to do something. They had to turn something around. Anyway, so they and they're serving, you know how it was back then and everybody nobody served Bergman ever. I mean, you just didn't want to get them too excited because every time he hit, you know, you were just, it was every, he was one of the very few that when he got a serve, or if he dug a ball and dug it really well, like right in front, the whole crowd starts going, ooh, waiting for him to hit the ball. And I'm not exaggerating. Literally, that's what crowd would do when him or like Tommy Shamalis in the mid-70s would get a ball. You'd start going, ooh, just waiting to see where his head was going to go. Anyway, so they ended up serving a ball to Bergman. And again, it's about this time in the game. And he made a perfect pass, and Von Hagen gave him a perfect set. Okay, so it's a really good play. Everything's on par. And you're expecting Bergman to hammer a ball and everything, okay? But I'm telling you, man, this hit, 
We all know what a left-sider's cut shot looks like. Every left-sider has to have a cut shot. Okay, yep. and you know, you, you slice the ball, and the ball, if you do it really well, the ball lands about three feet on the other side of the net over in the, the far right, as you're facing the net, the far right corner on the other side, at about three feet from the net. Okay, that's a cut shot. Okay, well, Bergman goes up, and again, it's a, it's a pretty normal play. Pass, set, pretty much right on, right on in front of him, and a lot of that. He goes kind of regular, he gets a, gets a big, full jump. So he's at least a foot over the net, if not more. But in the middle of the air, and there's no blocking, you know, he's blocking. Those guys weren't very big anyway, so nobody would have wasted their time blocking. Um, but nobody was blocking so, so that you see the scene. Bergman goes up and gets a really good leap. But in midair, he completely turned his body about 90 degrees. And I swear to God, I'm not exaggerating, because where this ball went, he turns to the right, you know, to the cut shot spot. About 90 degrees, he just does like a 180 in the air. And then he has that over-the-top swing. He didn't swing his shoulder so much as he popped his arm up and through. And that's how he would hit the ball straight down in front of him, usually. But this time, he turns, one, I think, 180, 180 to the right and does that pop hit. But he's turned to the right and he hits it where that touch would be, okay, about three feet on the other side of the net. And I don't mean like, you know, he turned and kind of smacked it. He turned and freaking hammered it. And I mean hammered it. And it's really hard to do because your body, you know, you usually get your shoulders into it turning back to the left. He's turning to the right. And so all that power is coming from that over-the-top swing. And he just blasts it, and it hit about where a cut shot would hit. Literally, like, three feet on the other side of the net and about six inches inside the line. Jesus. And the rope, and actually the rope kind of jiggled after it hit. And the other thing is it bounced, and I am not exaggerating, this ball bounced ten feet in the air. It bounced above the net. And, I mean, don't forget, it didn't even go right in front of him. Those are the balls that generally bounce pretty high because you get a, a downward angle on it. But this one was to the right, way over to the side, but just 100 miles an hour, bounced 10 feet. And I'm telling you, again, this is the funniest part of the whole story. First of all, that's the greatest hit I've ever seen. It's unfortunate it was semi-meaningless. It wasn't a big game, but still, I just never have forgotten it. That's like 1971. But the other thing was, after the ball goes up and we're still just all again, everybody is silent. We're just in awe. It's just an amazing play. And then a couple of us start clapping and everybody stands and applauds him for like 30 seconds. I kid you not. This is a game at 1 o'clock or whatever on Saturday, a meaningless game, although, again, actually they were kind of getting in trouble, but it's, they knew they weren't going to lose. A meaningless game. And I'm telling you, 100 people were standing up cheering Bergman for that hit. That's how impressive that hit was. Standing ovation you, for Bergman. <laughs> standing ovation for one hit in a meaningless game. I mean, it was absolutely astounding, and I will never forget it in all my life. All right, uh, 
It was really amazing. Bobby Barber and whether he's playing with Mark or, or uh, Brad Barber, his sons, uh, I bet they remembered that one. And yeah, probably. About probably. The rest of their I, lives. I believe, they I were probably clapping too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. They might. Bobby, especially, he's pretty funny. That old codger. Um, even older then. He was in his. He was almost fifty then, I think. Yeah, um, those guys did a lot for uh, the the sport. Uh, that barber family, good good people yeah, up there in the palace. He was a mus- muscle beach guy. Yep. He had he had uh, he had some uh, gift shop or something at the pier. I, I I never got it straight, but he had a shop up there. The yeah. Family. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, what did what did Bergman and, and Von Hagen do after that play? Did they act like it was just like a, a leisurely stroll to the park because they were so accustomed <laughs> well, to doing you know it? Von Hagen, you know, Von Hagen, he isn't going to do nothing, you know. I mean, he's not exactly the most uh, demonstrative individual. Uh, and Bergman was a little shy about it. He, he was always kind of a reserved guy. So I really, I don't. It wasn't a big reaction because. But, but again, oh, um, those two weren't really very, they weren't like the wildlife, wasn't like Hooper or something like that, you know, or me. <laughs> I would have been, you know, running around the court high-fiving everybody, but, yeah. you know, if I did something like that, or, you know, there's different guys do it different ways. Also, they were behind, I mean, that, that what was, I think that's kind of why Bergman did that. He wanted to do something special to kind of change the nature of the game. Because right. Well, nobody thought they were going to lose. You know, you never know. And uh, Barber had them completely confused with that uh, short dink, fake fake dink, loopy shot. And uh, so, you know, I think Bergman, what he was doing was trying to, to change the tone. And he did. It was right about then that they turned it around and kind of turned it into a route. I think it was like 8-5 Barber, something like that, or... Maybe it was less. I don't remember. But they beat him pretty good. It wasn't by the end. And that's kind of when it changed around. I mean, it changed the whole nature of the whole damn beach. Everybody was wondering, what the hell's going on over on whatever. I don't remember the number back then. They had only had nine carts at Manhattan then. There's like 20 now. Was that south of the pier? Oh, south of the Yes, yes, of course, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know they played at some point north of the pier uh, in in some tournaments back in the day, yes, but it, not often. Yeah, no, not Manhattan Open. There was only, the, all the courts were south of the pier, um, but it was nine back then. And that's an interesting thing is where they used to play the finals because everybody, because back then, Manhattan, man, that was the one tournament that really about 10,000 people would show up on Sunday. <sighs> Yeah. And that's the only tournament that had I've seen those like classic photos then. of like the yeah, 71 yeah, yeah, Manhattan course. Open when it's Rundle and Clem versus Von Hagen and Bergman. That's yeah, the one I put yeah. on that Gods to Ghost Volleyball shirt. And um, I mean, the pier is packed. The stairs the are packed. That's right. The pier is always packed. There's yeah, people, I mean, there's people sitting the there. It's, oh, it's the neatest the photo I've ever seen in my life. Von Hagen setting Bergman. Rundle's blocking, Clem's dug in in the angle, and Bergman's just crushing a ball. It's just beautiful. I've seen that picture. Yeah, that is a And he great... pikes like that where his body kind that's of That's what I mean. That's what I'm saying. He snapped pikes through the stomach, and that's how he's able to go that over-the-top swing. Yeah. Where he snaps up and his stomach snaps. That's exactly right. And that's what he did uh, to the max on that hit that I saw. And the funny thing was is that there were people watching it and then we all gave him an ovation 
for like <laughs> one meaningless hit in the middle of a meaningless game. That's what just makes it so unbelievable. So I wonder yeah. if that night when he went back home and slept in his own bed, he thought about that stand. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think even for him, that one was one of his best. I cannot, I, I would have to imagine that it was. It was where that ball landed with the force that it had. I can't, I don't even know how you would hit a ball in that spot. Part. I, I just don't know how you do it. I really don't. Yeah. You have to turn so much and you have to be up so high uh, because well, I guess you could hit it lower if you timed it perfectly, but anyway, it's just very difficult to get the ball there with any heat on it. And I mean, this was just as hard as any ball I've ever seen hit. And it and it hit a groove or a pocket in the sand and bounced over the net. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And it's just the angle, though. It was just ridiculous. It was like one of Karch's best hits indoors. Yeah. You know, but not on the beach. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, and then bounce it in the sand. That's Ed yeah, Manhattan, and I'm not exaggerating. The ball went over the freaking net. I remember saying that, which whoever who I was sitting with, we were, because, you know, you always say, oh, how many feet is that? And it's kind of hard to gauge height unless you have a background. But we knew that it went above the net. So that's eight feet. You know, it's at least eight feet. And that's, <laughs> that's a pretty high bounce, man. <laughs> you know, again, so... Anyway, so Bergman could unload on balls. Who else were some of the uh, other players that you saw over the years, not just from them, that, that time period, but um, all along the way that you always, yeah, uh, like well, you always wanted to stop and, and watch them when they were going to tee off well, on them? Uh, yeah, well, the, the first one that comes to mind is, is TC, Tommy Jamal. Is, yeah. No question about it on him. I mean, he was just... So scary. I mean, he played that, especially that year, year or two with Von Hagen, where well, there was one year they were the best team. Yeah, seventy four right? was the year he was really good, and um, I Is think he, the and then he, yeah, and then he also won with Marshall Savage that summer, and he he won with a couple different partners. He was the the best player on the beach that summer. He was for, the best player. And on then the he left for the IVA the next year, but oh, don't ever bring that, that up to Von Hagen. Yeah. He gets real pissed yeah. off. <laughs> Well, that was the end of it, because he couldn't set. When he came back, he could not. Oh, God, there's an interesting thing to talk about, although it's a negative, and I hate to do something. Tommy was a really nice guy. Uh, but that was just, I didn't know him very well, and that was so, we were all just just praying for him after a while. It, it got so weird, he could not touch a ball without chucking it. I mean, he just could not touch a ball after he came back from the IVA, every single ball he would take with his hands would just start spinning. And he was a decent, I mean, he was never a great setter, but he was a decent hand setter. But when he was playing Von Hagen, now again, Von Hagen passes the ball like a machine, but still, uh, that was really sad. Anyway. So Tommy, what, what made him uh, unique as a, as yeah. a hitter? What was his his uh, deal because uh, yeah number one would be Tommy I think and you know he was a he had an interesting hit too you know Tommy was built kind of weird he probably had the biggest legs I've ever seen I'll <laughs> never forget you would you know how when you stand when you're waiting for the ball and both guys bend over and put your hands on your knees yep. you know and you're waiting for the ball and I swear to God Shamal his hands only covered about half of his thigh I always, <laughs> don't look at that I swear to God his thighs were just tree trunks man 
And, you know, he was kind of a thick guy. But his bad thing was his arms were not very long. He had short arms, uh, which usually hurts you as a hitter. But, however, it does make that arm, or it can, it can make that arm swing really fast. And that is what he had, because I don't know how in the hell he did it. But, and, of course, he got up so high from the legs that the short arms didn't matter. But, you know, back then, he, he always played the right side. And, well, he played the left sometimes, but that wasn't that successful. He was a much better right side player. He had this swing where he came right over the top. And he's like the only right side player that I can ever think of. I mean, occasionally guys will hit a ball down the line from the right that's impressive, but... He did that routinely. Just every time he hit it, he would literally hit the ball in front of the left side player. I mean, it would land like on the five to six, seven foot line, you know, right straight in front of him. Now, a lot of right siders can kind of do the cut hit and hammer the ball to the middle of the court or cross court right in front of the right side player. But to hit the ball in front of the left side player is a whole other thing in a whole other thing, uh, whatever that word is. Anyways, and he just did it routinely. Unfortunately, you know, he never got a serve, just like Bergman. He never got the ball. And the big thing would be, because he was such a great digger, too, he would, hit. he would get down there and dig some balls. And then once in a while, you know, he would dig a ball perfect. And so that he would get a good set, and then then then, then the whole crowd's doing the ooh thing again, you know. <laughs> that's the only time he gets the swing, you know, and he he'd go for it every time that the set was good too. And I'm telling you, I saw a couple times. I don't remember any particular because he did it every. I mean, this is what he hit almost every. Any ball was tight. This is what he would do. He would go straight down the line. And I remember a couple of times that the ball would just like bounce right in the face of the left hand left left side guy because <laughs> you can't get. What are you going to do? Stand at three feet, you know, and put your arms out and try to maybe Lang Lang used to do that where you'd get on basically down in his on his in like a crouch with his butt on the ground almost, you know, about five feet from the net, just ready to dig a missile, you know. I, that was the most amazing thing about Lang to me. But uh, that's what you would have had to do to try to dig Tommy because it would just be like five feet in front of him, just straight down. And uh, that was the most, I think that's, that's the one, the one I remember most, him and Bergman. Um, of course, you know, Karch, man, I mean, you know, it's kind of redundant to talk about Karch because right. he's just so freaking great. But you know, there's that one great, that great picture of Manhattan Open with Karch just, he's hitting the ball that's going to land three feet from the net. I yeah. mean, it's just obliterated. That and that then, Robbie Hutas photo you're talking yeah, about no, with Sinjin yeah, well, setting him, yep. Those are Hutas photos. Hutas did wonders for beach volleyball. I got he a great sure story did. about him if you want to hear it. But. Yeah, we'll get to him uh, in some, uh, you know, I love those photographers, the Kevin Goffs, the Bob Van Wagners, and the Hutas. Yeah, we can <laughs> chat on them uh, a little okay. later. But, uh, yeah, let's keep talking about these hitters. I'm getting jacked up. I wish I could still play. They hit a nerf ball around the house yeah, here. It's, a, it's unfair to leave Karchow, and let's face it, when, until his, he had the surgery on his arm, I mean, he's as good a hitter as anybody all around, and he had the shots and everything else too. And he could hit a, he could just pound the ball down, man, because he got up so high. And uh, I don't want to leave him out. And I was at Manhattan when that 
on that play. And I remembered that, and there were some others in that game, too. Um, so he was definitely one. Um, somebody else, well, the more recent guys, their guys are getting so big. When, they're, when you're 6'8 and hammering balls, it's not all that exciting. It's more like, you know, guys that could jump out of the gym. It was more exciting. That's why it was so neat to see Bergman do it, because he really isn't that big. And some of those guys just had really live arms that uh, yeah, Berg, you would yeah, just go, Bergman. holy smokes. Yeah. Like, I, and just... Karch did, too. Karch did, too, before the surgery on his shoulder. Things slowed down a little bit for him then. I'm not, I'm not having anybody in my memory actually stick out that much. Um, that's a pretty uh, good list in and of itself right then. And yeah, there. I, I'm forgetting. Doug Dunlap I talked about. Oh, well, Kilgore. But he only did it for one year. So, I mean, you know, that kind of limits it. And Doug Dunlap, Dunlap might have hit the hardest ball of anybody of all time. But he hit deep. And so it wasn't that impressive looking. But he hit a hard ball. Man, it would knock you over. But it would hit you in the chest. You know, not in your bunk, you know? Yeah, it's unbelievable. I got hit by him once or twice. It damn near knocked the wind out of me. He hit a hard ball. What ball was it that you guys played with back then? Was it a Wilson? Oh, no, no, the Spalding. It was always the Spalding? Oh, what you're thinking of, what you're thinking of is the Rawlings ball, which when I started playing Spalding, I guess, a ball, that's another, that's a really interesting story. The damn... Okay, in the early days, late 60s, early 70s, they were playing mainly with the Rawlings ball. Okay, that's the one that, like, the one that I see in the photos of, uh, you know, the 70 Manhattan Beach Open with... Um, it may be. That, it you're may thinking be. that's the Rawlings? Okay. Well, in 70, it probably is. I don't know. I'd have to see the picture. But th that's about the time of the transition because the problem was... Well, actually, none of them. When the Spalding ball, they started making it. I mean, I don't know when they started, but... We started getting it in about the same time, so early 70s. But the thing, they did not have a bladder, uh, not a bladder, a uh, reinforcement, that wire reinforcement cage they put in it now, or they did later on. So there were, I mean, I'm telling you, man, when you went to, here's, this was the, this was the routine you would go through. You go to the sporting goods store, and you get a ball, and you, you look at the rack, and hopefully there's about 10 of them. And you take every one of them out, and you spin them. To see if you could find one that was round, because literally you didn't want any wobble. <laughs> they all were lopsided. If you found a round ball, it was a miracle. And you know another funny thing, I'll never forget. So let's give Steve Arnett a little shout out here. Steve Jaguar, uh, 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 wait, Jaguar John Arnett. That's the Rams. What do we call Steve? Oh no, I'm forgetting. Oh no. Badger, the Badger, Steve Arnett. Okay, played at Rosecrans. Oh, he's another guy that got way up with long arms. Yeah, I heard and he could him. jump, huh? He got way up. I played on him with a cattleman indoors with him, and he could hit over the top of freaking anybody. And he was only six feet. I used to work out with him on occasion. He, he would run the, the stairs at El Camino about 50 times. I couldn't. I stopped, man. I couldn't keep up. Anyway. Steve Arnett came down and he, he ran tournaments at Rosecrans and he had a perfect ball. And I'm telling you, back then, anybody that had a good ball, you were begging them to use it. Can I? And so that was a big deal. Don't bring your ball to the tournament if it's any good because everybody's going to want to play with it and it's not going to last more than three weeks. And so that whole deal, trying to find a round ball, was just a big deal. 
then Spalding came in. <clears throat> Again, I don't know if they started then, but that's when we discovered them. And theirs were about half of them were around. So we, so the whole everybody that was on the beach started shifted over slowly for over a couple of years in use of the Spaldings. And then this, and then also, by the way, you mentioned Manhattan. This is another thing that was Manhattan was the best because when you went to Manhattan, they had a ball for every court. And it was the best ball you'd seen all year long. And they had about ten of nine of them for nine courts. And that was no other tournament ever had that. And and they all had the ropes that were all down, you know, those big thick ropes they had at Manhattan. Anyway, they all had a ball for every court. They were marked. They were good. And it was just fantastic. You always looked forward to. And the and the the friggin' nets were up, and they were eight feet, not seven nine or eight two. They were. Within a half inch, eight feet, every friggin' court. It was great. Charlie, uh, Charlie just did a great job on all that. Anyway, so eventually Spalding uh, redid the ball and they put that, at least I've heard that's what it is, they have like a metal cage inside and that's how it got round. And so then, I don't know, mid-70s or something like that, then they were pretty much all round. And every that's all we used was the Spaldings then. Uh, the last few Rawlings were around in the early 70s. Again, Steve Barnett had one. I just remember Dane Selznick had one. Dane Selznick, and this is how, this is how in, incredibly great they were. This is, I literally remember a ball, you know, 50 years later. That's how important it was. Because, you know, playing with a friggin' out-around ball is not a lot of fun, you know? Right. I mean, it's bad enough serving into the wind, right? You know, you know the ball's going to dance. Try it with an oblong ball, see what happens. <laughs> you know, Jesus, it's a nightmare. Anyway, so uh, so when you see the pictures of Manhattan, it's probably Spalding's, uh, unless it's a really, really old photo, because I don't remember playing with the Rawlings at Manhattan. But, you know, they, were, they had to be at some point. So, anyway, that's, uh, that's what I remember on that issue. That's what, what else were we... What, what did you ask me? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, that was uh, about the hitters. So that that's a pretty good uh, list right then and there, the Bergman and Shamala stories with the ooh. Yeah. And then, uh, oh. There and I wish I would have. From there, Dunlap's in there from that time. I know I'm losing. Oh, well, you, know, you know who, as far as hitting pretty damn hard, is OB. OB, I mean, I don't put him in the level with those guys. He didn't have as much down on it all the time. But OB hit the ball pretty damn hard, I'll tell you that. So he would spray it around a little bit, especially early on. But when he would get in a groove, he was pretty damn tough to pick up. Yeah, I've heard um, that. He had uh, he just had a heavy hit a pretty heavy ball. He hit a heavy ball. So did Von Hagen. Von Hagen hit a heavy ball also. Um I don't know what causes that. I've wondered that a lot because you see from the way they hit it, they don't necessarily, the ball's not going fast, but it feels heavier. It must do with rotation. I'm not sure about that, but that's my hypothesis is that you get more spin on the ball than it tends to be, gets heavier, but I'm not sure about that. That's a good thing to ask about. Somewhere. Right, yeah, that's... Uh... What makes a heavy ball? Because it's not the speed of the ball. It's definitely not that. I don't know what makes it that way. <clears throat> it's funny, in baseball, when you hit a ball, different different balls go like that, too. And it has 
Anyway, I didn't want to get on baseball. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that's where my mind's at. I, I know I'm missing somebody, but that's that's where I'm at right now. I can't think of them. All right. Oh, oh, okay. Um, um, what about uh, diggers? You mentioned uh, Lang a little bit earlier. Uh, oh, yeah. what, what do you do? You recall any um, amazing digs well, from him? Yeah, and then who yeah. else would be in that category of guys that yeah. you're just you know love watching yeah. play defense? The thing, the thing with Lang obviously was a great digger. You know, I mean, he's one of the greatest players. I just remember how low he got, and I you know I see him play all that many times. Even though didn't 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 we go over him me beating him at Muscle Beach last night? Yeah, I think we did talk about that. <laughs> so that I was uh... I want to rehash that again. But anyway, Danny Sign, guy that played with me, he's got to be even more excited than me. But anyway, I just remember how low he would get down dug into the sand. Anyway, Diggers, you know, and that reminds me because I it I flashed to Marine Street and the Marine Street mixed because in mixed, you know, the guy does basically everything. And Butch May was, a lot of people say, it's always arguable pretty much between Butch and Bud Schwartz as to the best mixed player. Anyway, whichever way you go, actually they both played very three. But Butch, Butch May, man, he used to get all over that court. He was so fast when he was, and a lot of us saw him when he was older. And it's not fair, you know, you think, okay, this is, and he was really good. I saw him as a triple-A player, uh, but he was like 38, you know. I mean, that's not fair. I don't know what he was when he was 23 or 4. And, I mean, uh, I've heard, uh, and I saw him in the mix when he would kind of, his game would come back to a greater level because I saw him before 38 at the mix. And I didn't see him in the open. Uh, and Butch May was a really muscular guy, really strong and First of all, he was both a digger and a sh- and a shot getter. You know, some guys are really good hard hit diggers, mm-hmm. like Chamalas. Chamalas was a great hard hit digger. I don't remember him running down a million balls, but he was great at hard hit. And uh, Butch was good at both because he could cover the courts. And Karch, Karch is another guy like that. Karch, when you know, the next time you see a film of Karch. Watch him churning through the sand. I am telling you, that guy's like a freaking bulldozer. You know, Karch, I'm not kidding you. You know, I saw him a lot because I refereed in the 90s, like, you know, almost every other weekend. So I saw Karch play a lot. And I'm telling you, man, he is strong through the sand. His ankles, look at Karch's ankles next time you see him. Yeah, he had They're some like big-ass big calves on him, didn't he? His whole leg, yeah, lower body big. legs were just like his dad lasses. Yeah, all his legs are big, but his ankles are freaking huge. He's so thick. And I'm telling you, man, he, I never saw anybody bulldoze the sand better than Cart. Um, anyway, Butch May was, you know, Gary Hooper was one of the best hard-hit diggers, especially overhand. Hooper was always digging balls. With, Hoop with the scoop? Chicken, <laughs> Hoop the scoop. Or with the chicken wing hanging out, you know, or the two-handed grab, grab and pop. You know, some guys were really good at that, where they would grab the ball, basically. Like an overhand grab, dig, like your like yeah. Mangus would do, or you're, like it's your catching a, a, a football. But, uh, Mingus yeah. was good at it, exactly. Good call by you. Mingus was also. But the thing is, you, you, what, you, what they really did was they grabbed the friggin' ball, but, but you have to get rid of it so fast that the ref wouldn't call it. You know, and of course, if the ball's just, you know, a, 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 a crush... 
you know, then you get a little more leeway. You know, you it just can't stick in there for too long. Like you can't stick. Yeah, and it was a real fine art. I heard you had to have really strong hands and 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 some balls to put your face in there. I remember a lot, and you know Hooper would drive you nuts sometimes. But man, he was a groveling little player. He was a gutsy dude, and he he got in there and he would dig things that I just I mean I couldn't even imagine digging. <laughs> he told me when I asked him about that, he said he didn't care. He just would walk into the ball if it, he didn't care where it hit him the head, the face, the right. arm, the chest, the nuts. That about right. As long as it like, got somewhat of a trajectory, either forward or up, he, he didn't care. So, yeah, I wish I would have seen uh, him because. I think like Fred Zulich told me, they call him Hoop the Scoop, and he he was really exceptional with uh, getting balls up. Oh, he was he was a hard hit digger. He, he nobody was better than him, and especially overhand. And Mingus, like you said, which was kind of similar, because Mingus, I you know I don't remember Mingus running down a million. I mean, don't get me wrong, obviously he was good at it, but he it wasn't like his main thing. But digging hard hit balls, Mingus was as good as anybody too. Greg Lee was kind of, you know, he, what he would do, he would fall. Because he was, Greg, Greg, I swear to God, man, if he would just stand in the middle of the court and then fall and extend his arms, he could, I think he could touch the back line and, and the, the middle line. Yeah, he had a lot of length to him as an oh athlete. Oh, my God, he? he was huge. I mean, he was like 6'3 or 4, but his arms were really long. And so if you put it all together, I mean, he just covered... I don't know how many times I used to call it the ugly knuckle or the ugly <laughs> dink when he used it for a dink. He had that ugly knuckle shot that he would use for a dink, but he also, he would use it to get balls that were over his head. He would just reach back with his arm and use a knuckle and just pop it straight up. I mean, that's hard to do. It's hard to, it's, it's not too hard to touch it, but it's hard to pop it straight up, you know? And he used to do that a lot. Um, I had somebody else I was going to uh, uh, dig in the ball, right? That's what we were doing? Yes. Um, well, those are the guys that come to me the most right now. And I, You know, you can never, you always forget somebody. Uh, Later in his career, I heard Gage could put get the balls Gage up pretty a, good. Gage was a real good hard hit. Matter of fact, he was one of my hated ones. He seemed to know where I was going quite often. Uh, <laughs> now, we did we did play each other several times. We kind of got about even. I beat him as much as he beat me, but, uh, but yeah, he seemed to know where my ball was going quite often, and he was a very good. I don't know if I put him up with those other guys, but he was a very good hard hit digger, no doubt about it. He would get under that ball deep under there too. I mean, obviously, freaking one Manhattan man. I mean, you know, you got to be awfully good. Him and Buzz. Buzz was a great, great digger too. Buzz, in my opinion, Buzz is the greatest. Buzz and Nine is the greatest uh, mixed team of all time. But the argument is, so that everybody else gets to hear that, is uh, Butch and uh, Eileen Clancy. Yeah. Uh, those are the two teams that will always get mentioned, and, you know, we can argue it from here to Hades, and it doesn't matter. But uh, they did play each other a couple times at Marine. Um the one I saw, Buzz and Nina won the tournament in the finals. Uh, 
Yeah, um, I think I interviewed Buzz uh, like about a. Well, I just finished the, the the whole podcast the other day, and he's a real nice guy. I really like. Oh yeah, him. Buzz's a great Captain guy, Captain Buzzard. Um, but he told me how he got to play with Nina is that Matt and Nina were playing together, but then Matt started dating. I think Rose maybe. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Rose, <laughs> and then so he so Buzz is like, okay, that's good. That's you that's play with your girlfriend, and I'll play with Nina. And I think they won. <laughs> that must have been the year that Matt played with Rose. Yeah. Because he played with her one year. Yeah, and I think Buzz and Nina, he really liked playing with her. They were, uh, like you said, I heard a heck of a team. Are you kidding me? Nina Nina Growwinkle and then Nina Matthews. That was her name, Growwinkle. I went to high school with her. And Nina Growwinkle Matthews, oh, my God, man. She's just incredible. And she could even hit. You know, when, uh, you know, she actually played with Mike Cook in the Marine Mix one year. Uh, That was a little earlier. I mean, Mm -hmm. she was still really good, but. She hadn't gotten to the level that she did later, but she was... Anyway, Matt, or excuse me, Mike Cook, he would give her about a quarter of the court. <laughs> he could hit almost as good as he could, you know. But, uh, and Buzz gave her some court, if I remember, but Butch, he didn't give... I Well, Eileen was so tiny. That's a different story. She wasn't going to be able to hit. So, But but no matter who Butch played with, he put a girl in the corner and did the whole court thing. And... And a lot of guys did that, but Butch is the guy that did that the best for sure. There's no question about that. Nobody covered the ground better than Butch May did. That's, so that's why I brought him up, you know, as far as uh, uh, defense, uh, uh, you know, digging balls, because he could do both. He was a great runner downer and a great hard hit digger. He was a great player. Yeah, and that uh, that Captain Buzzard, I think when I talked to him, he had uh, Matt Gage um, told me that Buzz had some really great shots on the court from both the oh, left and from the right, including the infamous he had a Cobra shot, which I always think yes, of the he Cobra did. guy. He did. He used the Cobra. <laughs> he used the Cobra, believe it or not. Yeah, and he used it well, shot. too. What? And I heard he used it well, too. Oh, yeah, every shot in the book. Boy, are you kidding me? Buzz Schwartz was a nightmare to play. <laughs> you never knew what the hell was going on. But you didn't serve him, man, because he couldn't set for shit. So you served his partner. As a matter of fact, I'm not kidding you. I killed. I just, me and Kirk Donaldson destroyed Buzz and Gary Hooper. If you can believe that. Now, don't get me wrong. There were times where I beat some of the best teams, but... That wouldn't be, uh, me and Kurt Donaldson not normally is going to be the team that wins that, but we played them in Manhattan one time, and we just we just played freaking great, and we just killed them. We beat them two straight, and Buzz, you know, the, the, uh, Buzz bumped everything. He shouldn't touch a ball in his hand. Yeah, I think his... Buzz said the one thing that, you know, he... Uh, was the weakness in his game, if there was such a thing, is that sometimes his sets weren't the, the, the best. Oh, yeah. As good he, as, he not, you know, yeah. what can you do when you're really good at everything else? You know, everyone's right. got something well, that's not up to yeah, snuff. Yeah, he bumped the ball pretty well, though. I mean, he was a pretty good bump setter. But, you know, back then, with the game back then, without the block, how perfect that set was was more important, you know, because guys weren't able to put the, there weren't, the guys weren't as big in general. So if the ball's two or three feet off the net, that usually became a shot back then. And uh, nowadays, you know, all the, a lot of the guys that are hitting are 6'7 or 6'3, and, you know, you're going to hammer most balls three feet off. But yeah. that wasn't the case back then. So the ball was set tighter. Also, you couldn't penetrate on the block, so you couldn't trap anybody on the block. And even if they were up, 
you know, you could kind of whack it off their hands because they couldn't penetrate. So, uh, in other words, what I'm getting to, directing that set, you know, with your hands was the better thing to do because you could make a, a more perfect and uh, precise set with your hands. But, I mean, you know, Mingus and Gage, you know, they bumped their way to win in what, five tournaments one year or something like that? I mean, for a couple of years. And they, bump, they both bumped every ball. So it could be done. And right. they weren't they weren't big crushers either, Mingus or well, I mean they were both good hitters. I'm not taking that away from them, but they weren't animal guys that were crushing balls from three feet back. But you know, Mingus had every shot in the book too, man. He would he had yeah, just like ever. Buzz. Well, you know, I always tell I I've learned this now is that I think Buzz had an unfair advantage in that uh, he was sponsored by and fueled up on that Perry's Pizza all the time, and no one else had <laughs> that Perry's advantage. Pizza. <laughs> Perry's Pizza. Oh God, Perry's <laughs> Pizza. Oh, and do you know about volleyball cokes? Do you know that? Uh, well, I just know that Buzz could have all the pizza and all the Cokes that he wanted at Perry's okay, Pizza, so he took advantage that, of that liberally. A, okay, here's a good, this is a good little mini story. That, you're exactly right, I'm sure. I, I don't know about that, but Buzz was a Hermosa guy, so that makes sense. I'm sure that's true. But what also happened is the Perry's Pizza there, what they did is, you know, the, the volleyball crowd at the Hermosa Pier was, you know, quite a few people. And so they wanted to, 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 to mine that crowd. So what they did is they started a thing where you just go up to the window and only the volleyball players knew it. Okay, nobody else knew it. Only the volleyball players and you. Any anybody was playing in Hermosa, you knew this, and you could go up to Perry's Pizza and say, "Give me a volleyball coke," and you would get for twenty for only a quarter. Now this is back then, so it's not as cheap as it would be now, but still, it was one of those big cups, you know, like twenty ounces or something. Yeah, big gulp. Yeah, and it was on the beach, and it was for a quarter in the middle of summer. That was a really good deal. So they would give everybody down there, you just say, give me a volleyball coat, and they gave you this huge thing for a quarter. <laughs> and that was going, that went on for about five years. And then guys like you and Bogey had, like, uh, a pint of, like, uh, Jack Daniels or uh, Captain Morgan. <laughs> and you went to town That's with it. it. Spiced it up. I told you, I had one beer. I couldn't even really freaking hit the ball. I couldn't stand up if I had a beer. I swear, I don't know how Mingus, I don't know how a lot of those guys played after a beer. I do not know how they do it. But a lot of guys did. Hmm. Anyway, uh, you know, talking about food, that's an interesting side. Taco and, Bills. You know, one of the greatest, what? There was Taco Bills is always oh, in those. Oh, you know about Taco but, Bills. <coughs> it's always in a lot of those classic photos. and I. Uh, that is true. And I'm telling you, I have had some of the greatest <coughs> Sunday afternoons. You know, with the, we had the beer in the in the cooler, like everybody, you know. But still, you're looking forward to it when you're done. And and late in the afternoon at Hermosa, which was also a nice, not, not as great as Manhattan. But, you know, Hermosa was a real nice place to be. And there were a lot of people. And I had a couple gals in the South Bay. Let's give a shout-out to Kelly. She'll know who she is. Anyway, uh, and you would go to Taco Bill's and get a taco burrito. And anybody that's had them, man, it's basically taco stuff with avocado and sour cream all wrapped into a burrito. Plus, it's right there. It's literally 100 yards from the court. And you would get that thing all warm with a beer, and you're out there watching the finals. Oh, man, I can just, just remember how many Sundays I had like that. And I'll tell you, I'd give anything to have another one. Yeah. I would give anything. 
feel like Man. Uncle Rico and need to create a uh, time machine so we can go back there. <laughs> no, Rod, Rod Taylor, Time Machine, 1960. That's the greatest. That's one of my favorite movies of all time. What do you mean with Rico? What's that about? Uh, that's oh, from that. Napoleon okay. Dynamite, and he's got oh, an, and his I've Uncle Rico that. always wants to go back to 84, couldn't, oh, okay, you know, because okay. <laughs> he'd throw a football over the mountains and he could take state. Right. Instead, right. he's like a Tupperware salesman oh, okay. <laughs> in a van. Yeah. Well, you know, my daughters saw that when it came out, and they, were, they, they wouldn't stop talking about that thing for six months. Right. Anyway, so, so, and I saw it later. It really. Well, I don't know the details, though. I don't remember that part. I'll watch for it next time. But now, bottom line is, movie, yeah, if we could, uh, that would be a good time period to go back to. Just like Von Hagen says, how great the beach was in the '60s. It was clean, and um, the, yeah, you know, had yeah. all these athletes and football players and co-eds from CLA and USC, and all those legendary players and families like the Steers and. Wally Busby and all that kind of stuff. So John, John Valley and and John and Keith Erickson, two yeah. of his partners that played at UCLA and then played pro basketball. By the way, the Erickson, this is probably the great. I'm going to. I'm going to. Okay, let's finish with this. This is the greatest semi story I've ever heard because I've never. Oh, I was going to ask Von Hagen that night we talked. Okay, but I forgot. I forgot. This is the greatest story I've ever heard in about volleyball, but I've never been able to verify it by anybody that was that I thought it really counted. But here's the story. Keith Erickson playing with Von Hagen in Manhattan. Erickson plays the right. Okay? They're uh, they're facing south, so they're on the north side. I don't know the game, it doesn't matter. The point is it's an Erickson hit. Supposedly See, I can't believe this. I think what, uh, anyway, here's what simply he did. Again, there used to be nine courts in Manhattan, okay? And they were in rows of three, 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 okay? And they were playing on the middle row, I believe court five, which is dead middle. It doesn't matter, but it's one of the middle courts, the second row. Now, he's on the right side facing south. And, you know, you tend to hit cross, except for Shamalas, you tend to hit cross court. Supposedly, Keith Erickson, in the tournament, playing with Von Hagen, hit a ball on one hop that went into the parking lot. Now, now I have heard that story a couple of times. Now, personally, I don't believe that, because from the second, the second row of courts, I mean, that's like, that's like 100 feet away from the wall. And I, I don't know if you could... If a ball could bounce once and get up, I don't know. It just doesn't even, even if you, you know, took a, a gun and shot it, I don't think it would bounce up there. But the first one, it could have, you know. Yeah, and, I and talked that, to Rich Raffaro and um, he. This is about his time. Rich yeah, Raffaro told, I've Late got 60. a picture of Raffaro and Spike playing against um, Ernie Sawara and Keith Erickson. And oh, I, I think it's from 65. At Manhattan, and, and Bob Van Wagner took the photo. It's awesome because in Rich and uh, Spike have on their baggers shorts, which are the longer ones, which were rare back then. Anyway, I sent it to Raffaro to get some confirmation on stuff, and he goes, all I remember, Scott, is that 
Um, we and they were playing on that first court near the parking lot. Um, he goes, I, I just remember that during warmups, we we it was uh, something special because when you're playing against those guys and doing hitting lines against Sawara and Erickson, you know, you step it up a bit, and we were all bouncing. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you say Sawara was playing with Erickson? Yeah, and they were all oh, all three of them were. Another guy. Sawara is supposedly the only guy that ever broke a ball. Yeah. That's, that story I've heard from like 10 people. I think that one's true. I heard that. I'm going to interrupt your story. I really no, am. that's fine. I don't, want to, I don't want to forget that. That's the only guy I've ever heard of that broke a ball. And I've heard that a lot of times. So I think that one's true. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. Finish. Yeah. Your okay. So Raffaro told me that uh, what he goes, he didn't remember the year and all those other things. But he said, I just remember Crank Van Wagner came over and took that photo of us. And then we got, start, started warming up. And, and then uh, Erickson, myself, and um, Sawara were all having a bounce contest. And they were putting balls over uh, up into the parking lot. And I think that's pretty badass. I wish I would have seen that. I can only imagine how much fun that was for Spike Borch <laughs> just laughing like that, you know, mischievous well, son of a gun he go. is. That's probably where the story comes from then. That, that's probably it. Plus, Sorara, if anybody hit the ball harder than anybody, I've, all I've done, I've never seen him play except when he was, he was old and done. But uh, I've heard from everybody that he was like the hardest hitter they ever saw. Yeah, Von so Hagen said as much, and I asked uh, Skates yeah. when I interviewed Tal Skates who yeah. the hardest hitter was in his, you know, 50-year career at UCLA. Uh, um, and he, without hesitation, and you think of all the great players that have come through there, even like his, yeah. you know, late yeah, 60s USVBA teams before it became an NCAA sport. And he yeah. said, without hesitation, Ernie Sawara. End yeah, of story. yeah, exactly. That's what I've heard many times. So I believe that one. Uh, yeah. And that's probably, noting your story, that's probably where that story came from. Yeah. Like that sounds more like it is from the first row of courts. Somebody told me the second row, and I just, I I don't think, you, I just, I just don't think so. <laughs> I just don't think that could happen no matter what. You know, I just don't think you could even physically do it. You know, no matter how hard you hit a ball from the second row. But anyway, boy, that would have been fun to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, I'll I'll send you the picture. It's really cool. Raffaro didn't say he hit one up there, did he? Yeah, he did. Oh bullshit! No Raffaro could hit really hard and straight well, down. Oh yeah, but this is a big. It's, it's like a hundred feet. I mean, or sixty feet to one bounce to bounce up there, and it's like twenty feet high. <laughs> uh, Ruffiro was a middle hitter, man. I mean, nothing against Rich. Hey, I, I don't mean to be mean. I'm not against Rich. Is a great player, a great middle blocker, great on the beach and indoors. But, but I don't. I never. I don't think so. I don't know. Okay. I'd like. Okay. Yeah, well, it's all still just fun stuff to think about, I know, right? I know. I know. And uh, Sawara and Erickson. I'm pretty sure that's when they did it. That makes all sense. I'm glad you told me that. I never heard that before. I've just heard that story quite a few times, and nobody could pin it down. Yeah, the only other person that did something like, well, the other stories I've heard of those bounce, great bounces, Shamalis bounced one over the wall at Sereno Beach uh, into the, uh, the Hyatt House by the pool, which was a pretty... Oh, I'm sure he did. Yeah, yeah that, I believe that. That was a classic story. And then Dave Boardwell told me at State Beach, um, Peter, he saw Peter Velasco hit a ball there that bounced up uh, restrooms or whatever that is. Oh, yeah, that there. could happen. I've yeah. seen, actually, I, actually, I've seen that. I, I might even have done that. That's a, that would be a straight-on hit 
because the restrooms are basically behind the court uh, if you're facing north. And uh, I've seen that happen, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, that's a big deal, but... Uh, anyway, who's, who, who did you say? Velasco? Where yeah, Peter going? Velasco. He was on the, uh, the the USA Olympic team um, what? in the sixty in the 60s. Yeah, he oh, played with Lang. Like Lang, and uh, they made him into a setter, but he was really into a, 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 a better hitter. Uh, okay. That's a whole other story to get into about that Olympic team and what a shit show it was because of Harry Wilson. But, uh, yeah, that was those are some pretty cool classic uh hit stories to put it mildly so all right all right man well um yeah that's good there this concludes part two of our interview with jeff jordan thanks so much for tuning in for it stay tuned for part three if you haven't done so already please make sure to visit our website godstoghost.com our facebook page which is gods to ghost volleyball or our youtube channel which is also God's to Ghost Volleyball. Thanks again for listening. Talk soon.